Before Jay's lesson, let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. I'll be reading from 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 14. I'll be reading from the New King James Version. The Bible says, Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, without spot and blemish, an account that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation. As also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all of his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which some things are hard to understand, which those who are untaught and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they all do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, since you know these things beforehand, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the error of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To Him be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. Preparing for the unexpected is very difficult. That might be one of the biggest understatements of this year. But preparing for the, un, for the unexpected is very difficult. And that ranges from life-changing you know, alterations to our year to when it comes to just packing for a trip. Preparing for the unexpected can be really difficult. The image you see behind me is the Fukushima nuclear plant that um, was built in 19, late 1960s and, and finished in 1971. The engineers who built this plant had a unique problem on their hands as they, as they put the plans together to put this nuclear plant um, uh, there on the east coast of Japan. Their problem was they were trying to put it on the east coast of Japan. They're right on the side of Japan where multiple tsunamis had hit in the past. There where earthquakes were, were common, yet this was the best and really the only place for this nuclear plant that they could have. And so the engineers got to work. How do you prepare something to this degree needing to be that precise, not knowing when an earthquake is going to hit, not knowing how big a tsunami is going to be? How do you prepare for that? And so they sought to answer that. So they looked in the records. They scoured all the records they could find of all the wave heights, waves, history, tsunamis that had rolled in, earthquake records from as far back as they could find. The furthest back they could find a recorded tsunami that had hit that very area was the 9th century. And they found that a devastating tsunami hit and cleared out the land, cleared out that whole area that they were preparing this very radioactive nuclear plant. And the way that made all that destruction back in the ninth century was 25 feet tall. And so they said, okay, if that's the biggest wave that we can find in our records, when we go back and we look at our blueprint of how this area is laid out and what has hit it in the past, the biggest, worst thing to hit it is 25 feet tall. We'll go 35 feet. And so they planned for that. As they built the plant, they built a seawall. You can kind of see it outside of the, kind of the outskirts of the water there. 
35 feet tall. And that was great from 1971 all the way up to March 11, 2011, when a 9.0 measured earthquake hit about 50 miles off the coast of Japan and sent two waves their way. The first one that rolled by was 25 feet tall exactly. And for that brief moment, they said, okay, wow, this is great. Just as the engineers planned 50, you know, 40 years ago, we're going to be fine. But that was just a brief moment of relief because about 30 minutes later, a 45-foot wave came in and completely, irrevo irrevocably, destroyed the plant. A lot of people lost their lives that day. 30,000 people were upended from their homes. 12,000 of them never got to go back to their homes to grab anything ever again. They were shut down. The area was just quarantined off forever. It's the second worst nuclear reaction uh, disaster outside of Chernobyl that's ever happened that we, have that we have record of. All because a group of men tried to plan for the unexpected. They did their very best. Let me turn this on. They did their very best, but it's hard to plan for the unexpected. When you don't know exactly what, that is coming around the corner, you don't know exactly how to prepare, or what's just down the, what decisions you're going to have to make, what, what life, what path is going to lead you, what battles you may have to fight, it's hard to prepare for the unexpected. All the way up to something like that, and to where, like I said a second ago, I was packing for camp a couple weeks ago. And even though I've gone to camp my whole life, it was still hard to pack, and so I did what I always do. I just pack as many t-shirts and extra sets of clothing as I can and just ho hope that's enough. And I still feel like I always run out of t-shirts. It's hard to prepare. And like I said, this might be the biggest understatement of 2020 because this is the year of unexpected, uncommon, unknown, unfamiliar. And we're about to just continue right into it this fall. This is the year of battles we didn't expect, decisions we didn't foresee having to make, a path we didn't intend to walk down, and it's only August. Teachers, business owners, contract workers, students, youth ministers, we're facing an unknown fall. We're, in fa un we're facing an unknown tomorrow of what we don't know what's coming our way. So how do we prepare for that? How do we not only confidently but comfortably stand prepared for the unexpected? Because if you're like me, I don't want to wake up and be hit by a 45-foot wave saying, I've done my best, I've prepared to, every, to my best ability, but it's still just not good enough. Six months ago, if I did my math right in my head a second ago, six months ago is February. Man, what six months can do to our plans, to what we think 2020 is going to be like. What's six days going to be like from now? How do, you, how do you prepare for the unexpected like a year that we've had right now? The problem that the engineers had in Japan is that the records they went to, the blueprint that they looked at was faulty. It wasn't perfect, it wasn't concise, and it didn't have a full record. My goal this morning is to look at the perfect record that our God has given us to give us a blueprint to how to prepare for the unexpected. We're going to look at three different unknown aspects, unknown areas that we go to, that we find ourselves in sometimes. And we're going to look at how men and women in the past have, even though they, they were not expecting what is now in front of them, they stood, they stood strong, they stood confidently, and they stood comfortably before the Lord. So how do you prepare for the unexpected? I hope that by the end of this lesson, that'll be something that we can all agree on 
that we can do confidently and comfortably, standing, prepared for the unexpected. The first one, if you have your Bibles, is in, excuse me, Genesis, um, Genesis chapter, uh, I'm sorry, Exodus chapter 17, excuse me. Exodus chapter 17. Exodus chapter, seven, ch- chapter 17, verses 8 through 13 in a moment. Some context to where we're at when we, before we just dive into this text. Moses is still a new leader for the nation of Israel, right? Just back in chapter 14, he's leading them out of Egypt. This is the same Moses that in Exodus chapter 3, chapter 4, was making every excuse that he could come up with because he didn't believe what God was telling him. God is saying, Moses, I need you to be my leader. I need you to be the Savior that leads Israel out by my hand. But by your leadership, I need you to be the one to lead this group of people out of Egypt, lead my people, set them free. He keeps giving excuses, and he doesn't think he's, he's ready for this. Talk about an unexpected challenge, an unexpected responsibility falling into his lap. But he finally sees through it. He finally agrees that, okay, fine, if, you, if you're going to be with me, if I can have Aaron with me, then I can do this. And so he signs up, and he gets out. And he leads Israel out of Egypt. They cross the Red Sea. This amazing moment, maybe one of the most beautiful moments in all of Scripture. He leads them through a few problems. They're hungry, they're thirsty, they're complaining. It sounds like a car ride right now. But then you get to Exodus chapter 17, and the car ride thing kind of leaves, right? Exodus chapter 17, starting in verse 8, is when Israel faces her first true enemy. Israel is swept away behind them, and now there's, no, there's nothing in front of them besides the Amalekites, a group of people who want to destroy them, who want to stop them, impede them from moving forward, forward at all. And so this unexpected responsibility that Moses has already stepped into, right? As he's, as he's a, a humble shepherd, and now a leader of thousands, millions of people, and now look at the hat he has to wear. Now he has to not only be the leader of this nation, but he has to be the military mind of the nation. He has to be the general that he sets out in motion. He has to be the, the man that's to plan out this military affair, this, this infant nation of Israel. He has to be the military genius with the help of God that stands strong, confident, confidently, and comfortably before his people and come up with a plan. Let's read together Exodus chapter 17, 8 through 13. Let's see how he handles this unexpected responsibility. Then Amalek came and fought against Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, Choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him, and fought against Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. So it came about when Moses held his hand up that Israel prevailed. And when he left his hands down, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands were, were heavy then he took a stone and put it under him, and he sat on it, and Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side and one on the other. Thus his hands were steady until the sun set. How did Moses do this? How did Moses have the knowledge to go on the hill, to grab the staff? How did he know what to do to, to handle this situation? This is the same man that was timid to go to Pharaoh. This is the same man that had to have constant reminders that God was with him, even though God had time and time again shown him his might and his power. 
And now he's confidently striding up a hill with the staff in one hand and his two helpers on the other side of him, ready to take on this fierce enemy of the Amalekites? How does he gain the confidence to this? I think we can find the answer to this, this very small notion in verse 9. Tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So, so many times in my life when I've read this story, this is one of my favorite ones, I, I love the idea that you know, Moses is on the hill, he's having to hold his arms up and how heavy they got, and he has to have help, and, and I focus on that. The story where he has his arms up and he's got Aaron and her holding them up. But there's another really important part to the story, and that's what's in his hand. He brings what he calls the staff of God with him. And he tells Joshua, this is what I'm going to do. You're going to gather a group of men, you're going to go fight, and I'm going to get, grab my staff, the staff of God, and I'm going to go sit on this hill. And by some reason, he knows if he just has that and he goes on this hill, everything is going to work out just fine. And I wonder how he has that confidence. And then I'm reminded of the very story in Exodus chapter 4 when Moses is waning back and forth of confidence, how he's going to know, Lord, when I go to Pharaoh, how are they going to know that I, that I really did speak to you? He says, what is it that you have in your hand? And he says, a staff. He says, throw it down. He turns into a snake, and we all laugh because Moses runs away, just like we would. That very moment, this simple shepherd's staff that had always been his, now God uses to show him, I am with you, and I am powerful. And then fast forward to Exodus chapter 14. Now he's standing in front of the Red Sea. In front of him, he's got the Red Sea, and behind him, he's got the Egyptians. It's now or never. This is the time when he's going to act. And Israel is complaining, is it because there's not enough graves in Egypt that you brought us out here so we could die out here and night in there? And before he can even go and file a complaint to God, God looks down and says, Moses, why are you complaining to me? Raise up the staff in your hand and the waters will part. And you will walk on dry ground. Once again, this staff, not that it has any power, but God uses, uses it almost as a symbol, as a reminder in Moses' hand, I am with you, and I am capable. And so I find Moses in Exodus chapter 17, when I'm facing an unexpected responsibility, yeah, I'm grabbing the staff. Because that reminds me of the past victories my God, my Savior, has helped me in. I'm reminded of the time that he, he, he turned that into a snake in front of me. I'm reminded of the time when I raised it up, God, not the staff, God, part of the Red Seas. And so, yes, I may not know what is facing me tomorrow on that hill. Yes, I may not know how to lead men into, the, into, into, you know, into a military fight, but I do know with this staff in my hand in the past, God has been with me and I have prevailed. And so, yeah, I'm grabbing the staff. Moses remembers past victories. He simply pauses for a short moment and says, how has God helped me in the past? And that, just that, that short moment of reflection, I'm going to bring the staff of God, now that he calls the staff of God, not his, the staff of God, he pauses and says, how has God helped me in the past? And I'll let him help me right now. You know, I'm not sure what hill you might be walking up tomorrow. I'm not sure what unexpected responsibility you may be entering into this next month, this next week, today. 
But I guarantee you, if you will take a moment to reflect how God has helped you in the past, it will give you the confidence to move forward with your future. We all have this beautiful gift of being able to look backwards, right? And see, as Christians, important times in our lives where that was God helping me. That was an answered prayer. That was the conversation I needed. That was the moment in life I needed to gain my confidence, to gain my whatever it may be. Hindsight is 2020, right? That's kind of part of our vision for the year. If you were to stop before we, we step into this unexpected responsibility, you know, speaking just from what this year has looked like for me, speaking on a, to a laptop is uncomfortable. That's a small complaint, right? I should not even be complaining about that. But it's uncomfortable. You just have to stare at yourself the whole time. I don't know how you look at me. I don't know how you do it. I hate it. And it's really tiresome. Ben, Kyle, and I have talked multiple times about how we, I, I would, we can get up here and speak for an hour, and we're ready to go eat lunch, we're ready to go do stuff after that, but a 30-minute lesson in front of a laptop, I've just got to take a nap. I've got, I've got to hydrate. You know, we're drinking waters on these Sunday night studies. That's not just for Dasani commercial, you know. We're trying to stay light. We're trying to stay you know, awake there because it's, it's tiresome that. And like I said, that's a small complaint. I remember the first time, the first lesson I did, and I've spoken to, you know, online and stuff like that before, but I remember the first lesson I did this year. And I was nervous. There was no audience in front of me. It, was, it wasn't a Zoom, it was just a, my laptop, and I was really nervous. And I remember thinking, okay, Jay, this is no different than speaking from the pulpit. This is no different from speaking upstairs. This is no different when the countless devos you've done at camp and, and in hallways and in classrooms, wherever it may be, it's just a different situation. It's a different context. Maybe your context has changed this year. Maybe what you're doing, the roles you're fulfilling, maybe your job has modified, maybe your every day has been changed. But I guarantee you, if we'll just stop for a moment and reflect on what God has done for you in the past, you will find the confidence to move forward with your future. I'm reminded of the author of Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, when he says, if we will just hold on to the confidence of our hope, let us, hold, let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. This is one small short verse, but I think this drives home what I'm trying to get across here. If we will hold on to the confession of our hope, that moment where God saved us from not a virus, not something like a job change, not where God saved us from our nine to five looking a little different. The moment when God saved us from the clutches of death, the moment when God saved us from the, the whims of, the, of, excuse me, from Satan. If we'll just hold on to that confession of hope that we made, this reflection that God has saved us before and God let us stand up before then he who is promised is faithful. How do you stand in unexpected responsibilities? You look backwards and see how God was there for you in the past. Flip over to Acts chapter 16 as we move forward. How do we handle unknown paths? How do we walk the unknown path if we don't know where it's leading? Acts chapter 16, I'll read verses 19 through 24. 
But when our masters saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the authorities. And when they had brought them to the chief magistrates, they said, These men are throwing our, our city into confusion, being Jews, and are proclaiming customs which is not lawful for us to accept or to observe, being Romans. The crowd rose up together against them, and the, and the chief magistrates tore their robes off them and perceived and proceeded excuse me, to order them to be beaten with rods. When they had struck them with many blows, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to guard them securely. And he, having received such a command, threw them into the inner prison and fastened, them, fastened their feet in the stocks. Once again, the context of what's going on here is Paul and Silas have made a few people kind of angry. There's been, two, there's been a group of men, presumptively two men, making a lot of money off this girl that's possessed by a demon. They're selling tickets like a sideshow. She can read your future. She can read your palm. She can tell your fortune. Just come, step right up, pay a penny, and she'll tell you what's down the, what's down the road for you. And after getting annoyed by what, their, her pestering of Paul, Paul finally removes the demon and it upsets them so much that now they, he has removed their source of income they, they, they trounce up these charges, they throw them in this kangaroo court, and before they know it, they find themselves in the innermost parts of a prison. And I'm so guilty of knowing the end, the end of this story and not focusing on how hard this must have been at this moment. When you stop right here in verse 24, and we just put ourselves in, in Peter, excuse me, Paul and Silas's shoes just for a moment, just how difficult maybe that one night might have been, even with them singing praises in verse 25, how difficult it may have been. A few things to remember. They were beaten with rods. You know, the Jewish custom was, Jewish custom was 40 um, stripes, less one, 39. Romans didn't have that. There's no telling how many times Paul and Silas were beaten with rods that day, bruised, bleeding. And then they were led to have their feet shackled to a wall. You know, there are prisons from this day and age that you can visit and you can look at. And we have records of how they treated their prisoners back then. My Bible, growing up, when I did the coloring pages, right, of Peter, uh, I keep saying Peter, excuse me, Paul and Silas, with their feet shackled, it almost looks like they were just lounging. They're, they got their back up against their wall, their feet are together, and they've got some nice shackles there, and I, and I colored it, right? From what we know, that's not at all what it looked like. They would shackle their legs so far apart that they couldn't reach it with their hands. This was not just to chain them to a wall. This was to add to the torture of what they were having to go through. This was to add to the uncomfortableness of what they had to sit in. We need to remember that they were beaten. We need to remember how uncomfortable they sat that night. We also need to remember where they were. They're in the innermost parts of the prison. There's probably no light. There's no air. And this is where Paul and Silas are sitting. And they don't know an earthquake's about to happen. They don't know that, that everything's about to be fine. I want us to thinking back a few chapters earlier, a few maybe years earlier in their life, in Acts chapter 12, when both James and Peter were arrested and thrown in prison. But there's a difference. Peter was saved, right? Peter was led out by an angel, but James was not as lucky. James was killed. Now, I'm not here to discuss why James was killed and why Peter wasn't, what, why that was decided that way. What I'm here to say is, Paul and Silas don't know how this is going. They could go the James route. They couldn't, there's a chance that they wouldn't be waking up the next morning. But there's also a chance everything's going to be a-okay, and God is going to see us through this. 
But they don't know that in verse 24. It's not like, okay, it's 12 o'clock, we need to start our singing. At 1230, we have the earthquake, and at 1 o'clock, we baptize the jailer, and we're home by 3. That's not the itinerary for their, for their cell that night. This was an unknown circumstance. They, they did not expect to be in maybe that, that day. And yet, this is where God had led them. This is where their faith, I should say, had led them. And how? We know the story of 25 through 34. How do, in that situation, not knowing how it was going to end, how do they sing praise? How do they have such a positive outlook in what was going on? They did not let their physical situation determine their spiritual mindset. They didn't let what they were sitting in, how they were sitting, and the unknown path that they were sitting in, circumstances they were sitting in right, right then, determine how they were going to look at this spiritually. They realized, they remembered, just like Moses remembered, they remembered who is in control at this moment. I'm not sure what hill you may have to climb, what role you may have to fill. I'm not sure what path your faith may lead you down. More than likely, you're not going to have your feet shackled to a prison wall. That doesn't mean there's, hard, there's not hardships and disappointments and heartaches that accompany the Christian faith today. Even, and even out of the, the Christian faith, I'm not sure where your life will lead you and what heartaches and disappointments and what ups and what's downs life may throw at you. But I believe if we're like Paul and Silas here, remember, if we remember who is in control, we don't have to let our physical situation determine our spiritual mindset. That's how they hold on to the joy that is within their heart. They remembered who was in control. Romans chapter 8, verse 28, a very misquoted verse. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to His purpose. Many people will get up and say that this verse talks about, okay, if you love God, everything's going to be fine, right? If you love God, things are just going to work out, and everything's just going to work out for the good. What does that mean when things don't work out? When you are loving God and life does throw you a limit, does that just mean, okay, I guess, I, I guess I wasn't loving God enough? No, what this verse is saying is no matter what happens, for me to live for, is Christ, for me to die is gain. That's the mindset being professed here in Romans chapter 8, verse 28. Whatever happens, good can come of it in our Christian faith. If we're going to be prepared for the unexpected, we need to remember God. Remember our past victories. We need to recognize who is in control. And then lastly, the unfamiliar decision. We've all had to make decisions before in our lives where we're not prepared to make it that moment. That caught us off guard, that put us in situations we were not comfortable. Quickly, 1 Samuel chapter 24, 3-7, David finds himself in that. David is now hiding out in a cave, running for his life, and Saul is pursuing after him. And in chapter, three, in chapter 24, verses 3 through 7, David is given this kind of amazing moment. Him and his friends, the men of David as they're called, are hiding out in the back recess of this cave, and Saul comes in to relieve himself and sits down. And his friends, his loyal companions, tell him, David, you, this is it. God has surely given this situation into your hand. This is the time for you to rise up. Whatever you think is best, David, that's what you should do here. And I want to point out, this is not just some random people that also happen to be in the cave with David. First Samuel chapter 22, we see who these men are. 
These were men who left the comfort of Israel, possibly left their families there to go and to stand by David's side. These were men who were risking it all to be with him. If they are caught with him, they could just as easily be killed and put down as David. These are not just some acquaintances David made in the cave that day. This is some loyal companions that are risking their life just to be next to him. And they gave him some advice. David, this is it. Do whatever you think is best. And he kind of has a half action. They're wanting for him to rise up and strike Saul down, to end his life. But what David does instead is he gets up and he cuts off the corner of his robe. The corners of the robe, the tassels that hung down, showed the authority, the royalty that person had. And so what David is saying here is, I'm not going to end your life, but I'm ending your authority by, by what I'm doing. And he goes back, and then his conscience hits. He says, I shouldn't have done that. Who am I to strike against the Lord's anointed? He listened to his friend's advice. Well-intended, best friends. He listened to some really well-intended advice. And it still led him down a path he was not comfortable. And he goes out and he faces Saul and he apologizes and practically lays his head down and says, do, what you, do with me what you will. This was an unfamiliar decision David had to make. Up until this point in chapter 24, David had not been on, the, on this end of the decision. What do I do? Saul, Saul is here. Up until this point, Saul has just been pursuing him mercilessly. And now for the first time, David is in the position where he is in control. He can take the throne if he's ready now. It's an unfamiliar, unknown decision. And you listen to somebody else, and it almost led him really astray. feel like we're far too often the same David in the same cave, listening to other people's advice, well-intended, great friends that mean the best for us. We take their advice instead of listening to our conscience, to our heart, to God's Word. Instead of hiding out in a cave, though, our cave is Facebook, our cave is social media, our cave is the, the, the pockets that we hang out in. And we're not trying to kill Saul but the opinions that are go from, from far left to far right, from far up to far down, everywhere on the spectrum that any Christian could have any mindset at, people with well intentions that we were really close to put their opinions out. And we may kind of have this half action where we're not going all the way and fully believing that, but we may share it. We may like it. We may add fuel to the flame a little bit. Are you listening to the people around you a lot more than you listen to your conscience, your heart, to your God? Because David almost lost it here. David almost went against what he thought was the right thing to do. And what is the right thing to do? All because he almost listened to some really well-intended people. We need to be listening to the Lord. If we're going to stand, be prepared in the unexpected, we need to do two, three things. Remember our past victories. Realize who's in control and respond to his voice alone. Don't wait for someone else to tell you how to prepare. Don't hesitate by looking at other, how other people are preparing or how they're acting to how to mark your life. 
There's only one voice and one voice alone that sets our standard, and that's our God and our Savior. That's how we stand prepared for the unexpected. There's one last one I'd like to look at before we end today. I, I know that I said three, so I'm giving you a bonus, a, a, you know, a, a four for three type deal here. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8 through 10, the context of what we're moving into and our passage that we read earlier, verses 14 through 18. It's not an unknown, unknown decision. It's not an unrecognizable uh, role. It's not an unknown path. It's an unknown hour, a time in which we don't know when it's coming. We just know it is coming. Peter tells his audience, he says, I, I don't need to remind you of this. I know you know this. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. And because you know that, he says this multiple times, with that knowledge, what type of people ought we be? How are you preparing for the unknown? Not the unknown role that God may call you to fulfill. Not the unknown role that your life may call you to fulfill. Not the unfamiliar decision that you may have to make one day that maybe is out of your comfort zone. And not the unknown path that maybe your life may lead you, your faith may lead you. But the question that is more important than all else today is how are you preparing for that unknown hour? Because that's the unknown we know the most about. That's the one we know what God is expecting out of us. That's the one we know that it is coming. We couldn't predict what 2020 would look like, but we can predict what that is going to look like, that unknown hour. The only aspect we don't know is just when. We know how. We know what it's going to look like. We just don't know when. So how are you preparing for that? Don't hesitate. Don't wait for other people. Don't listen to other voices. You prepare yourself. In 1977, there was a really large fire in the Beverly Hills Supper Club, located in Kentucky. <laughs> Beverly Hills Supper Club, they were hosting a wedding reception that night, a couple get-togethers, a family reunion. There was upwards of 1,800 people in this one building. Some in this part of the building, some in that part, some, some in this ballroom, stuff like that. And a small electrical fire started on the very far east side of it. It started very small, but as the fire team got there, they opened up a door, rushed in oxygen, and the fire grew rapidly. There was no fire alarm system. There was no intercom system to alert everybody. And so it was slowly making, the news was making it away from one ballroom to the next, that there was a fire in the building, it was probably, we probably should get out. One busboy named Walter Bailey, age 21, finds out there's a fire, do, does his duty, goes and tells this huge ballroom, this was the largest one, of 852 people in it. He tells the manager, the one that's the MC of this event, it's a, I think this one was a, uh, a comedy hour, there's some, some acts being done. He tells the manager, listen, there's a fire. We're really, we really need to get out of here. We need to stop right now. There's an exit right there. We need to clear everybody out, row by row, right? And he goes, and he goes to the next ballroom. He goes to the next ballroom, and, and as he's making his way back, checking on it, he goes back into that large one, the one he had directly spoke to the manager, and no one has moved. Not a single soul has moved. The manager di didn't say a word. We can't lie on anybody else, right? And so he goes up there, and there's a comedian right in mid-act, right mid and he grabs the microphone, and people think this is part of the act. They start laughing, and he goes, listen, everybody, I need you to, li I need you to listen clearly, listen uh, you know, attentively right now. There's a fire on the east side of the building. There's an exit over here. There's an exit over there. We need to safely stand up right now, and we need to get out of this building. And you know what they did? They looked at each other. 
Are you taking this seriously? Are you taking that seriously? And they're just kind of looking at each other, waiting for the first person to respond. Thankfully, small groups started to stand up slowly and get out. But it was too late for a lot of them. About two minutes after he makes that very clear warning, there's a fire in the building. It's coming this way. Power goes out. Everybody loses their mind. Thankfully, because Walter Bailey and a large staff, there was small life loss that day because most of them were able to get out of there in time. They knew a fire was coming. They knew that this, this, this danger was headed their way. And I wonder how many times I've sat on the pew, we've all sat on the pew, knowing that the unknown hour is coming our way. And it doesn't have to be something that we're not looking forward to. 1 Peter chapter 3, verse, 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 11 says, it's a day we should be hastening, we should be looking forward to, if we're ready. So this morning, I, I just have to ask you, are you ready for the unknown, or do you feel prepared for the unexpected? Because it's coming. Whether it's something happens this week, whether it's a life decision, whatever it may be, I just want you to be prepared for the unknown hour more than anything else. Don't wait for the person next to you. Don't wait for the, per the person that you look to to do anything. You prepare for that time yourself. If you have any need this morning, you want to talk, you, you just need prayers, need encouragement, we ask that you just come and, and let us pray with you and let us be there with you. If you're thinking about baptism, that's something that maybe is new to you, that's a discussion you want to have, let's have that as well. Whatever it takes to help you feel more prepared we want to do that for you. Just come forward as we stand and sing.